tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Needless to say, the other disciple is the one who is the source of this story. So, little bit of bragging rights there. Just had to get in the fact, I got there first, I beat Peter. He reaches the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Once again, those of you who know the story of Peter, no surprise that he just rushed straight in. Didn't stop to think, didn't stop to look, just jumped straight in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first, again, mentions it again, just to make it absolutely clear, you noticed he got there first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples bent back to where they were staying. And then we're just going to flick on a little bit and catch up with where the disciples were staying. So on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So our story begins early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. And the Bible is full of stories of God doing something extraordinary in the darkest moments. Because for the disciples, this was a dark, dark day. Jesus, who they loved, who they'd been following, who they'd hoped was going to be the great Messiah, the Savior of Israel, had been murdered by the Romans on a cross, and it had all come crashing down. This is the lowest of the lowest moments. So Mary gets up while it's still early and goes to the tomb and finds the stone is rolled away. So just when she can't feel any worse, she gets kicked in the stomach by someone potentially stealing the body of Jesus. Because that's what she thinks. The tomb is empty. There's no body there anymore. Someone has nicked the body. Historians have wrestled with this for centuries. Christian historians, non-Christian historians, because Historians are prepared to accept that Jesus existed. They're prepared to read the gospel accounts as the story of his life. They're prepared to admit he's an incredible man. That his teaching was so counterintuitive for that moment in history. But they come to the empty tomb and they're mystified. Because the reality is when they approach this question of where did the body go, the facts don't really help us. Because the reality is what are our options? Dead body in tomb, next day, no body. Option one, someone that Jesus himself wasn't actually killed. He woke up in the tomb, weakened by having been beaten to death before crucifixion, then being crucified, but he was still alive. Somehow, he got up, moved a massive rock out of the way, and then escaped. Two issues with this, well, one main issue with this is... The Romans know what they're doing. When they kill someone, they stay dead. They were very good at this. In fact, 
No one in the history of mankind has been quite as efficient at killing people as the Romans. So the idea that they screwed this up is a big stretch. What's our other option? Our other option is that the Romans themselves open the tomb, remove the body, because they think the disciples are going to do something daft with it, and hide it. Problem with that? Firstly, they then hush up the fact that the soldiers who were there can't explain how the body disappeared. And secondly, wouldn't they have brought the body back out when Jesus' disciples started telling everyone he'd risen from the dead? That didn't happen. Third option, the disciples steal the body so that they claim they can claim that he rose from the dead. The only issue with that is, if you're one of the followers of Jesus and you know his body is currently resting in your shed, you are unlikely to die for a message you know is a hoax. Because most of the followers of Jesus were executed. So they're all going out there, proclaiming a message of a guy who's risen from a dead when they know that he hasn't? That doesn't make any sense. And this is the issue. When you come to the story of the empty tomb, do you come with an open mind? Because the question is, the evidence seems to say that something strange has happened. There are a number of secular historians talking about this at the moment. There's a brilliant podcast called The Rest is History that I recommend. And listening to two historians talk about this, they have to come up with a theory because Jesus can't have risen from the dead. So they start off with, no, he didn't. Then they approach the story and say, because he can't have, this must be what happened. Whereas I wonder if you approach this story with an open mind and you look at the evidence and you look at the facts, maybe where you end up is with a bit of a mystery. Because as followers of Jesus, we're prepared to admit there's a bit of mystery here. We don't fully understand all of the details. But like that early disciple he saw and believed, we're prepared to say, we think there's something in this. We think there's something wonderful in this. Because the reality is the empty tomb actually functions as a window. It's a window into the idea that there is so much more than we can see, feel, touch, and smell. What if, everyone, something else is going on? What if there is so much more than we can see? What if this world isn't the end of the story? What if your life isn't the end of the story? What if God is real? What if God is doing so many amazing things around the world all the time? And the empty tomb is a window into a new reality, a different way of seeing things. So do we keep an open mind? In the story, as I say, it described while it's still dark. At the worst possible moment, God breaks in and does something incredible. One of the worst moments I had was shortly after becoming director of a charity that worked in Eastern Europe, I went to Kosovo. I was visiting a church in Pristina in Kosovo. It's one of only two evangelical churches in the city. It's a really important church led by a wonderful guy called Arta Krasniki. I visited him. And he explained to me, Dave, the church is falling down. He showed me the cracks and literally any day that church possibly would just cave in. And he said, you've got to help us. So I said to him in his office, Arthur, I'm there for you. I'm sure we can do something to help. I'll speak to some people and I'll let you know. So I travel back to England. About three weeks later, I get a phone call. 
Dave, it's Arta. Great, lovely to hear from you, Arta. How are you doing? He said, I just wanted you to know we've knocked the church down. I said, I'm sorry? He said, we've knocked the church down. When are you going to send us the money to build the new one? I had only just become the director. This organization is famous for building churches, not demolishing churches. And so I'm faced with this situation. The most important church in Pristina, in Kosovo, have just demolished their building, and they're waiting for me to provide the money for them to rebuild. I was terrified. I literally, my stomach sank. I thought, oh, what have you gone and done? I replayed the conversation in my head, you know, as you do, thinking, we'll definitely help you. Could that be construed as knock the church down? It's okay. I'm going to provide all the money for you to build a new one. Maybe. So anyway, what could I do in my lowest moment, in my new role? What could I do? All I could do was pray. I didn't have the money. I don't think I could have explained to Marion the withdrawal from our bank account to build a church in Kosovo and the overdraft that we'd run up. So I didn't have the money. Where was I going to get the money? So I started praying. And you know, every single person I talked to about this project gave some money, donated some funds towards the rebuilding of this church. By the end of six months, I had nearly all the money to rebuild the church. And then I went to see our trickiest donor. This man was a hedge fund manager. He was notoriously fickle about what he was prepared to give money for. And I went to see him, and boy, was I praying. I prayed all the way up on the train. I prayed all the way from the train station to his office. I prayed all the way up in the lift. I prayed as I waited in the waiting room, because this was my last roll of the dice. And lo and behold, I presented the situation to him, carefully omitting the fact that they demolished the church because of me. I just presented him with the opportunity, and lo and behold, he wrote me a check for a quarter of a million pounds. So... The moral of the story here is in your darkest moments, when you think there is no hope, God can do something special. God can do something incredible. For me, in my darkest moment leading that organization, God came through for me in an incredible way. And ultimately, I don't think God was interested in me. He was more interested in an entire congregation with no building in Christina, if I'm honest about it. But the reality is when things are dark... Are we prepared to look to see if God is going to do something special? Because as you look around the world at the moment, it does seem very dark. We've got this cost of living crisis. There's lots going on in the UK. And obviously, we've got war in the Ukraine. And what the enemy wants you to do is think there is no hope. What the enemy wants you to do is to think there's no point. I can't make any difference. But the story of Easter Sunday is that God can do something amazing even in the darkest moments. So what I want to encourage you to do this week is to look around. Have an open mind about your situations. Whether it's a friendship, something going on in your family, something going on in your workplace. Have an open mind that maybe God wants to do something incredible in that darkest place, in that darkest moment. Because that's the amazing God we have. The second thing I want to think about is having open hands. I talked about having an open mind. How do we have open hands? Well, we read in the passage that these guys are hiding in an upper room. The body's been nicked. They don't know what's going on. They're hiding in an upper room because they're terrified they're next. They're worried the Romans are going to turn up, arrest them all, and kill them all. And Jesus appears. 
Now, I want you to get your heads around this. Jesus appears and he says to them, as the Father sent me, I am sending you, receive the Holy Spirit. And from that point forwards, the world changes. Now, I don't know whether you believe in God, whether you believe in Christianity, whether you believe in Jesus, whatever, wherever you are in your life, but you have to admit one thing. From that point in history, the world was never the same again. That within 300 years, Christianity had spread like wildfire from Jerusalem all the way across North Africa, all the way to Spain, all the way up through Germany and even into the UK. The message spread like wildfire. Once again, historians looking at the expansion of the early church struggle to explain how quickly this happened. And do you know what their conclusion is? The most popular conclusion among secular historians is the fact that the message of the gospel is so upside down, people loved it. That the Roman Empire, which was all about power, control, violence, domination, the Christian message of love your neighbor as yourself was so utterly weird that it spread like crazy. Now, I don't know about you. When someone gives me a message that is utterly weird, I don't feel inclined to pass it on to everyone I know. And once again, this is the point of having an open mind. If you come to this story and all you want to say is, there has to be a logical reason for why this message spread, and your best solution is the message spread because it was a bonkers message... That's not the greatest argument in the world. What if you approach this story with an open mind and you think, maybe, just maybe, the reason that message spread so quickly was that second half of the message, receive the Holy Spirit. It was to do with God being involved in these guys spreading the message. If you look at an event that cannot be explained in human terms, then surely we can say, maybe God was in it. Maybe God was involved. But this idea of having open minds and open hands, I don't know about you, but we live in a world of clenched fists. This is Donald Trump, possibly unwisely using the symbol for black power as he came out of prison. Came out of prison? Sorry. 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 Possibly getting ahead of my... No. Um, <clears throat> this is Donald Trump leaving the hotel, to go to the courtroom where due process will undoubtedly take place. But the point I'm making is, we live in a world of clenched fists. I'm going to fight for what's mine. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to win. I'm going to not let anyone take anything that belongs to me. Clenched fists, holding on to what we have or ready to strike out at someone else. But the story of Jesus is the story of an open hand. Jesus comes to his disciples and he shows them the wounds in his hands. And there's a really important thing here. He says this, and then he says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So his disciples, he's saying to them, don't go out pretending to be better than everyone else. Show them your wounds. Be open. Be vulnerable. Be honest. Don't pretend you've got it all sorted and you know better than anyone else. He's saying, as I laid down my life for you, as I was injured and hurt and wounded and mistreated, that's how I went to save. And I'm sending you out in the same way. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you to bring light into a dark world. Can we go out in that same spirit of Jesus with open hands to love and serve our neighbors? Because that is how the world is transformed in the power 
of the Holy Spirit. I'll finish with a story. A little while ago, we were, this is my favorite resurrection story. A little while ago, we were doing the noise in Southmead, and um, Tim Dobson, my illustrious predecessor here at Community Church, um, was leading a team clearing a garden. And as they were clearing the garden, he looked in through the window. And what he saw was an absolute mess. Basically, the family there had not been throwing anything out. So they were living in a little nest in the lounge, surrounded by all the rubbish. And so Tim offered to help them. As they started clearing the house, social workers were rung by one of the neighbors, and they turned up and gave them a five-day deadline that they had to sort the whole house out, otherwise the children might have been taken away. So Tim gathered a team, and they worked morning and night to get the place cleared. And they did. They got the place cleared. We got to know the family. And bit by bit by bit, we started to work with the family. The reason they were living in that condition was because mum was being mistreated by dad. And she couldn't face life. She couldn't face anything. And so bit by bit by bit, she gained her confidence. Bit by bit by bit, she began to address some of the issues. She kicked the guy out of her life. And she gave up the stuff she was using to numb the pain. I was leading a Bible study group with her. And one bizarre, wet Tuesday morning in Bible study, we're reading through the Gospels, and we'd got to the story of the resurrection. And I asked a very simple question, as I do when doing these kind of Bible studies. I said, what, does anyone here know what resurrection means? And there was a silence for a minute. And then this woman said, I know exactly what resurrection means. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I was dead. I felt nothing. My life was a mess. Since God has got involved in my life, it has been transformed. I am no longer dead. I am alive. And I thought, boy, forget theologians, forget all these long-winded descriptions of resurrection. That's the kind of resurrection that Jesus longs to bring into people's lives today, even right now. And I think there's something about his church, his people, sent out as he was sent out in the power of the Spirit with open hands and open minds. Open minds to see what God might want to do, even in the darkest moments. Open hands to love and serve the people we meet in the power of the Holy Spirit. I genuinely believe we can change the world. And even if we don't change the world, we'll certainly change the lives of the people around us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this empty tomb and for the way it speaks of a greater reality, that it is a window into this truth, Lord, that you are at work in this world, that, Lord, you are able to bring hope and new creation into the darkest moments. And so I just pray now for anybody here, Lord, who literally feels like they're in the darkest moment. Father God, would you breathe new life into that situation? Would you bring resurrection power to bear on that situation? And Lord, we pray for each one of us that you would help us today and this week to live with open hands. To live not like the world with clenched fists, but with hands that are open to the people around us. To love them, to serve them, to be vulnerable with them. In the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. If the band want to come up, they're going to lead us in a couple of songs. If you're interested in anything I've said this morning or you want to talk some more, do come and grab me at the end, or if you'd like to find out a little bit more about us as a church, there's the welcome desk at the back. So keep an open mind and keep asking questions.